This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. In 2021, as politicians across the country introduced and passed bills attacking transgender people, restricting their right to use public bathrooms and their ability to play school sports or establish limits on what healthcare services trans youth can obtain, a small but revolutionary thing happened. The nation's first independent comprehensive trans healthcare center opened, expanding access to gender-affirming care, including hormones, mental health services, primary and pediatric care, and HIV treatment. TransHealth Northampton opened in May in Western Massachusetts, far from population centers like Boston or Albany. This is a clinic that does more than just ask about personal pronouns. This is really a clinic that is striving to be the epitome of patient-centered care. The TransHealth Northampton Clinic really gets to know their patients at a human level, and they create an environment that's safe, affirming, and empowering for trans and gender diverse patients. By caring for their patients in such a holistic and culturally competent way, this could be a model that we may want to look at for all of value-based care. Dallas Dukar is the founding CEO of TransHealth Northampton. In this role, Dallas brings experience constructing clinical research and education services and community-based gender-affirming healthcare systems. She combines this leadership experience with frontline clinical experience in emergency inpatient and outpatient care. Prior to assuming the CEO position, Dallas served as the clinical lead for mental health services in the Massachusetts General Hospital Transgender Health Program, where she worked with an interdisciplinary team to provide novel gender-affirming care. In her career, she's advised international research groups in best practices and has carried out community-based participatory action research programs dedicated to empowering gender-diverse voices in a community setting. As a nationally recognized leader in transgender health, Dallas is on a personal crusade to improve the quality of care for gender-diverse individuals. For those of you that are about to listen to this episode, I ask that you think about how gender-affirming care could really offer a model for all of healthcare. And what I mean by that is it needs to be patient-centered and really based on the human story. 
So let's go ahead and hear from Dallas Dukar as she joins us this week in the Race to Value. Dallas, thanks so much for joining us this week in the Race to Value. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Dallas, I thought a great place to start our interview would be to learn about your personal journey as a transgender person. In your childhood, you struggled with gender dysphoria, having grown up in this heteronormative, cis-centric society, and you officially started transitioning, as I understand, in the summer of 2017 while living in Charlottesville, Virginia. And wow, I can only imagine how that was at the time, making such a brave decision during that summer when we all know there was that infamous white supremacist rally that took place. And I mean, to lean into such an important decision in your life and to be surrounded by such hate and discrimination where you lived, I mean, that must have made for a very interesting experience to say the least. But in any case, I, I wanted to just ask you, you know, as we start today, can you describe what your transition was like and how did that make you realize that the need for gender affirming care in our nation's health system and ultimately having successfully gone through that transition, how have you been able to overcome your gender dysphoria to realize gender euphoria in knowing your truest self at this point? Thank you so much, Eric. Um, I'd be happy to speak more about it. I think my my journey with gender begins as many people do, you know, early on when I was just a kid. And, you know, we all encounter gender somehow in our life when, you know, we're very, very young, usually around three or four years old. And, you know, if you ask many people about where they first found their gender identity or encountered it or really knew their gender identity, a lot of folks will have some difficulty in really pointing out the exact time when there was one moment. And I would say that's very, very similar for my own experience and, and probably very similar for lots of trans folks as well out there. Uh, you know, I had some of the classic examples of as a young kid wanting to wear dresses and wanting to dress in private and feeling ashamed about this. And there were also some very just kind of parts of my life that didn't make me question gender either. You know, I had some great guy friends as a kid. And I also had some times in my life where, you know, I was really into, say, toy soldiers, for example, or something, or, you know, like every kid, dinosaurs in space, right? Uh, And then as I grew up and as I got older, though, um, especially, especially around my own early teen years, I began to notice a lot of distress in my life. And there were a lot of things going on there too, but one of the main areas of distress really was around my own gender identity. And at that time, I just didn't have the words to be able to, to be able to speak what was on my heart. You know, there just was no representations of trans folks out there that I knew of. Everything also was just covered and coded in stigma and also growing up in a Catholic family at the time, it was not something that we ever talked about. And so really, really, there was a lot of self-hate and self-loathing at that time. And I didn't know exactly why. So many folks have their own defense mechanism, mine. Uh, and you know, some people call these defense mechanisms. I, I call them superpowers, actually. My trans superpower was really being able to kind of push things down a bit and continue on my path and really just try to work 
harder at what I wanted to excel in at life. And, you know, to this day, I think there's areas in which those trans superpowers really, really allowed me to become such a resilient human being as many trans folks are. And I think that's a, a key area that sometimes is missed by just popular media is the resilience that it takes to survive in a world when you yourself aren't even able to fully understand yourself at times. No one is able to really understand you and, and you don't have the words to be able to speak about your own identity. And especially as identity now becomes more nuanced and you know, especially as many, many, many young kids come out as non-binary too, there's just so many new ways to express oneself and also to express one's identity specifically and many different new ways of using language there too. For myself, that really led me to a path of, I think, philosophy and really asking some of these questions that have been asked for millennia about who am I and what is the right way to live? And that drove me to at least begin studying philosophy and ethics and eventually healthcare too. But kind of fast forwarding to, especially my experience in Virginia and in Charlottesville, Charlottesville, despite how it may have been covered in the media, is actually a fairly liberal town, a small pocket of uh, maybe social progressivism. But the University of Virginia is a public institution that only became co-educational around the 1970s. And so there has been a history of a lot of thought that might be considered more conservative at this day and age. And Virginia was also once referred to and sometimes still referred to as the birthplace of the Confederacy too. It was definitely, Richmond was the capital. And so there is a really, really terrible history of racial violence in Virginia and eugenics and violence against LGBTQ folks as well. So, you know, when I moved from Arizona to Virginia, I didn't know the first thing about it. I was pretty fearful at the time of that everyone would just kind of be waving Confederate flags. That's not what I found in Charlottesville. I did find a very loving community. Um, I, I actually was in a fraternity when I was just starting at UVA in uh, 2011. And I'm still good friends with many of those people too, many of whom have also come out in their own ways too. And so there are a lot of nuances in that story, but specifically, I will say, you know, there were many times where I was before that, where the KKK had come to town and I was a rescue squad volunteer there at those events. And I just shocked and horror that this could even happen. There were times where white nationalists had come to town with tiki torches, you might remember from the media. And at that time I was not on duty. So I was actually one of the people trying to defend trans rights and minoritized rights at those events. And then there were also just the horrific events that were then later covered by the media and the terrorist attack that occurred. I would call it a terrorist attack. And the, the shock that the city dealt with, people were just reeling after the fact. And I think it led to, in the aftermath, a lot of introspection for many of the folks in positions of power, understanding that there have been systemic issues that had plagued Virginia for a long time. And this is right around the time when Danica Rome, the first state legislator who is trans identified openly, uh, was elected, defeated someone that was, you know, proposing a, a bathroom bill, actually, back when those were more uh, in favor in the Republican Party. And this was around the time when the Virginia state government was actually moving towards a more progressive space, and then Democrats were winning the majority. So there was a lot of political 
change. And for me, I saw this as a real attempt to also try to advance trans rights, very much so in a healthcare arena. Myself, I, as an adult, the only place I could find care at the time was a pediatric clinic that just had the same clinic I was providing clinical care in uh, as a student. And they only had one or two sessions every once in a while for folks to actually be able to access hormones. You know, At the time, there was just such a limited resource in the area. And as an adult, I still required letters from a therapist to actually be able to validate that I was trans too. So that's what we call gatekeeping in the trans community. There was a lot of it. There was a lot of older policies. And I really took it upon myself to want to change those systems and change them within the larger healthcare system. There are so many healthcare systems that can do so much good. And there's a lot of change that can occur on large systems levels. But I think it was at that time where I really understood the need to have trans people at the table, the need to be able to have minoritized people in general in positions of power. Thank you for sharing the, this very personal story for our listeners, uh, your, your authenticity and dedication to improving the quality of care for gender diverse individuals clearly shows in your work as a contemplative healthcare leader, nurse clinician and advocate. And as a leader, you're the founding CEO of TransHealth Northampton, the nation's first independent comprehensive trans health care center. Uh, prior to assuming this position, as you mentioned, you served as a clinical lead for mental health services at Massachusetts General Hospital Transgender Health Program, where you worked with interdisciplinary teams to provide novel gender-affirming care. Uh, you're also on the faculty of Northeastern University and the University of Virginia School of Medicine and Nursing. You're an accomplished health researcher. You've carried out community-based participatory action research programs dedicated to empowering gender diverse voices in communities. So definitely a lot of meaningful work that you've done, that you've, as you said, taken upon yourself. Here at The Race to Value, we believe that health value, this revolution we're in with, in healthcare, will lead to patients having access to more holistic, patient-centered, culturally competent care led by teams of diverse and inclusive individuals. And I think gender-affirming care is a part of that, an important part of value-based care. But I've got to be honest with you, as a cisgender individual, I don't really understand it all that well. And I think I probably represent a lot of uh, our listeners. And so I'd like to ask you to discuss the concept of gender-affirming care. What is it? Why is it needed? And how is that model of care an example for potentially all of healthcare to follow in terms of being more patient-centered and compassionate? Sure, sure. Thank you so much. Here at TransHealth Northampton, we understand that trans people have been locked out of American society, its norms, its powers, its resources. And we really believe that we have the chance here to create a brick and mortar institution that makes it clear that trans rights are human rights. Part of that is really deeply investing in gender affirming care by hiring gender diverse individuals and really widening a pipeline for new and diverse pathways into healthcare. I think in this way, healthcare can become an act of liberation when we not only buttress against burnout for our folks or staff, but also co-create a healing space where patients want to enter into. So what is gender-affirming care? I often say that gender-affirming care is really patient-centered care. It's the process of really caring for every part of one's life that intersects gender. And if you think about it, gender is really everywhere, right? At least how it intersects with us. 
gender identity is a deeply ingrained part of our identity. It impacts us not only in the bathrooms, but in workplaces, in schools, and prison systems, more. It's really caring for the whole person. And it's doing something that I think healthcare has promised oftentimes, but perhaps not done very well, especially outside of mental health spaces. It's caring for identity too. It's really caring for that person's identity. And so we're working to reshape a healthcare system that's responsive to one's identity. You know, these interventions that were one time seen as distant, expensive, only afforded to a few, are now resulting in increased care. We're not providing a prescriptive model, but we're listening to the individual and relying on their vision of who they want to be, where they want to go. Some folks may say that we have an agenda here, but this is really not forcing anyone into anything. It's just opening and understanding. You know, it's really the simple truth and beauty of gender-affirming care is that it affords every human being the freedom to be who they are. And also parents, a lot of times for youth, the rare insight to better connect with children. Such care is a rebuke to those who tell others how they need to act and behave. And instead it says, we value you for really who you are. So yes, we are trans-led, we are comprehensive, we are independent, we exist in a rural setting, which is rare for trans clinics like this. Most also are part of large academic medical centers or FQHCs. And we really, as a small nonprofit startup, are able to be flexible and be able to respond to the needs of our patients while also doing research, educating, and advocating for change. I believe that a lot of what we do in just listening to patients and really trying to understand what needs they have puts patients first. It lowers costs and gets us better outcomes too. We're not making people jump through a ton of hoops to be able to prove their identity like I had to do prior in my life, but we're just trying to really get them where they want to go, which also results in higher patient satisfaction and a lot of better care efficiencies, which then down the line, it also results in stronger cost controls and any reduced risks that we might have for payers too. And we also then just have general reduced healthcare spending and better health overall. We know that a lot of the mental health distress that occurs in the trans community is not because of trans people. There's nothing inherently wrong with trans people. We know the rates of suicide remit to the national average when there's family support. And we as members of the trans community have that resilience. We know that just by providing some basic services and just also by providing a space where people do not encounter healthcare discrimination, we see much improved rates of mental health. We see suicide attempt rates go back down to the national average or many times below the national average. And we also see reduction in things like substance abuse and overdoses and um, just more people really receiving care. So this is evidence-based care. This is care that needs to be more available. And this is care that's just been scientifically proven. Um, I'm happy to go more into what exactly it is specifically, but I think at least what we're seeing here at TransHealth is that in general, patients get to spend less money to achieve better health. We also just see a more efficient system and we generally are able to really deliver on some of that value-based care.
Well, Dallas, it definitely sounds like it's just the ideal patient-centered model. And you mentioned that you're, you listen to the patients and you look to meet their needs in a very purposeful way. And, you know, that got me thinking a lot about health equity. And we talk a lot about health equity on our show. And a lot of people think of that in terms of ethnic and racial lines because they're not as in tune with the nearly 1.4 million Americans who identify as transgender. And I think it would be important to, to really look at that definition of health equity. And there's one that the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation put out that was a consensus-based definition around it. And I'll go ahead and read it. Health equity means that everyone has a fair and just opportunity to be as healthy as possible. This requires removing obstacles to health, such as poverty, discrimination their, in their consequences, including powerlessness and lack of access to good jobs with fair pay, quality education, housing, safe environment, health care, etc. So when you talk about gender-affirming care and, and the lack thereof in many areas, including rural areas, that's definitely a barrier. But then you also have these social determinants that are facing everyone, you know, in a community at different levels and different degrees. But uh, particularly with the transgender community, the data shows that transgender individuals are more likely to be in lower income brackets. I mean, I think there's about 44% of Americans in the transgender community that live on an income of 35,000 or less. And in contrast, I mean, I think about a third of the cisgender individuals nationwide were in that income range. And then consequently, you have about 20% of transgender adults that experience a lot of cost-related healthcare barriers. There's a lot of root causes for this. It's very obvious, though, that there's definitely discrimination, you know, that leads to employers that don't offer employment. There's rejection from family members. There's a lot of things that go into this, but I wanted to engage you on this topic of health equity and just ask for maybe your perspective on the context of transgender health and health equity and how your clinic works to address some of these social determinants in your care model. Sure. Thank you so much, Eric. So I might just start with a, new, a recent report that was actually authored by the Center for American Progress that showed that nearly half of the transgender respondents, including 68% of trans people of color, reported some form of discrimination or mistreatment at the hands of a health provider. Nearly half of all transgender respondents. And then we look at the intersection, right, of being trans and being a racial or ethnic minoritized person, someone who's been pushed to the margins, right? And now you have at least people of color who are trans saying 68% of them had experienced discrimination at the hands of a health provider, someone who's supposed to be caring for you. And we know that also more than half of trans respondents, including 68% of trans folks of color, reported postponing or completely avoiding necessary medical care. And we also know that around half had health insurers deny them gender-affirming care. Imagine if you go to a clinic and your first experience is outright discrimination, so much so that you avoid necessary medical care or you are denied medical care, especially from, say, your insurer, for example, how likely are you to go there again and try to receive care, right? Or, or even interact with the healthcare system in general. And I will say at TransHealth, we have had patients show up here with emergent vital signs for a primary care visit, right? 
uh, we've had folks on the mental health side coming to us with severe complex PTSD, right? Just trauma that's been recurring in their life over and over again. And we as a society and we as healthcare providers can just do so much better here. If we think about health equity too, at least our needs assessment prior to actually starting this clinic showed that there were huge transportation barriers. People had to take a day off work just to find a bus, just to be able to get to a clinic. We also had individuals that may not be able to speak English, right? So language can be a big barrier too, especially in some monolingual communities further out from Northampton. And then we also just had the idea and the notion of healthcare competency. Many, many, many trans folks had to actually teach their provider about gender affirming care. And that's just not what you should be doing as a patient, is going in and teaching the person who's supposed to be caring for you. So there's a lot of, I think, um, misconceptions and myths out there. And then, you know, on the gatekeeping side, there's just a lot of barriers that people have to jump through to be able to receive care, whether that's trying to get letters just to be able to prove their gender identity so they can receive something as basic as hormones, which is a life-saving medication, or perhaps try to get in with a, a surgeon who fits their insurance plan that has a wait list of years, right? And we know that hormones and surgeries are life-saving as well. There's just not enough providers. The providers that are doing this are completely overworked a lot of times. There's a lot of having to teach providers just some of the basic things around name and pronouns, but then also more specifics about the actual medical care of trans folks. And then we also see a lot of outright discrimination that leads to people postponing care. And then they show up in urgent care or the emergency room leading to higher morbidity and mortality as well. So there's just a lot of barriers here. And some of the things that we are trying to do here are you know, offer same week surgical ladder appointments, right? So if a surgeon is requiring you to get a ladder, that we help you get that immediately. We also hire trans and gender diverse folks, people of lived experience, so that if you come in, you don't have to be afraid that your provider won't be able to understand because they'll actually have walked in maybe similar shoes to you. And what that also does is help show the younger folks too, that you can live a life that is one that's meaningful and that you can see yourself reflected in say the people in front of you. It sends a really powerful message. Other than that too, our EMR systems always making sure that we actually collect appropriate sexual orientation and gender identity information. Because the fact of the matter is, if you don't count people, they're not gonna count. And right now we can't even understand the impact of COVID on the LGBTQ community because there are no federal systemic guidelines or reinforcements for actually getting folks to collect meaningful SOGI data. And when we don't have that data, we're not able to actually pull that and understand the effect on a larger community. So a lot of this is just really getting that information, collecting that data, respecting a patient's wishes, following their lead here. And then also some more systems level changes, trying to reduce barriers and wait lists. And also a big, 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 big improvement for all of healthcare, but I think especially in this space has been being able to see expansions of telehealth since COVID and 
Unfortunately, in Massachusetts, we've seen executive orders actually roll back and we're not able to see folks in New Hampshire and Connecticut and Vermont that are closer to us than in Boston. But the hope is that over time, we're gonna see some increased legislative attempts to really reform some of our, our telehealth laws so that we can actually expand access so that we can then ensure that all the gender diverse folks, at least in New England right now, can be able to receive care on a timely basis and not have to delay care and know that they can go to a space that they'll really be able to trust. I'd love to explore more what you've suggested a few times and it's really sobering to fully realize the disparities in outcomes that are so prevalent in the transgender community compared to general population. When you see the research that shows the transgender people suffer more from chronic health conditions they experience higher rates of health problems related to HIV and AIDS, substance use, mental illness, and acts of violence. I really want to focus in on the, the plight of the mental health and the suicidality in the transgender community for a minute. Almost four in 10 transgender adults report experiencing lifetime depression. That's twice the rate of cisgender adults. And 40% of the transgender community in the U.S. had reported that they'd attempted suicide in their lifetime which is almost nine times the attempted suicide rate for the entire U.S. population. In addition to these physical ailments and psychological harms, experiences of discrimination have been extensively linked to high rates of substance use with a higher likelihood of transgender adults being diagnosed with substance use disorders. I'd like to understand how TransHealth Northampton helps trans, non-binary, and gender diverse individuals to receive mental health care that they need. And how does the provision of that culturally competent care in a celebratory and open-hearted, queer-friendly healthcare environment support better outcomes in your care model? That's a great question. So I do think that there's so much of the media narrative that really tends to focus on the negative outcomes. And unfortunately, that only then reinforces some of those negative outcomes for especially trans youth, a lot of trans youth the data shows when they hear some of these really disturbing statistics, they think, oh, am I going to be doomed to a life of dysphoria? Or is this always going to be me? Or am I always going to be struggling? And so again, just number one, hiring trans folks really goes a long way to being able to show that it's possible to live a happy and healthy life. And then in terms of the mental health component specifically, we are delivering mental health and primary care right now. And there is a huge, huge need for therapy specifically and therapists that actually take many different insurances. It's one thing if a therapist takes the highest payer or just does not take insurance at all, but we are committed to really expanding access. And that means having a wide payer mix too. What that means for us is really trying to improve access for those folks that have been struggling with some chronic mental health conditions. And unfortunately, we see a lot of folks, and I've seen a lot of folks personally, who have been misdiagnosed or over-medicated because of their gender identity. We have folks that their PTSD has actually been labeled as bipolar disorder or schizophrenia because of confusion around their gender identity and also perhaps their race and ethnicity too. We also have folks that early on in the mental illness system entered in and no one knew what to do with 
gender identity. And so they were over-medicated as well. So some of the stuff that we do is actually de-prescribing. We have a great psychiatric nurse practitioner here who really takes the time to slow down and do comprehensive assessments, a lot of times spanning over the course of a couple sessions to really be able to understand someone's story. We right now provide a lot of short-term therapy and we're looking forward to the day when we can continue to hire more therapists and provide long-term therapy. But we really focus on getting people access to a space where they can begin to talk about their gender identity and also begin to really explore some of these longstanding issues and then get them connected to other gender affirming therapists that we know. We also offer integrated appointments too. So if people are coming in for primary care, they can also have a, a therapist or a psychiatric provider come on and join that appointment too. So that again, everyone can be on the same page and we can offer some comprehensive care there. Uh, in terms of the celebratory model, many of the things that people come in with, especially in mental health, really don't have to do with their gender identity because they know they don't have to explain that. You imagine having to go into a therapist's office and always having to explain your identity and how that relates to maybe uh, different aspects of your mental health. And then maybe you're working with a therapist who thinks your gender identity might actually be a comorbidity. That's not going to happen here. We are able to see you for who you are and say, if you want to talk about that, that's fine, but you don't have to. And it leads to much more expansive conversations, much more wide ranging conversations. And honestly, just people who are able to be more honest. Our no-show rates are incredibly low here in mental health right now because people are actually able to show up and, and be seen. And it's not just about say, getting a medication, but really the aspect of being seen and, and being valued. You know, we, we took an intentional stance early on to say, we're going to see trans folks, gender diverse folks, non-binary folks, and their families too. Because one of the biggest predictors of mental health success, really thriving as an individual is, especially as a trans individual, is the family staying together. So we also offer family work too. We also offer times where if a family's coming in and talking about blockers with the kid, that again, that integrated visit can happen. We really want to keep the families together and we really want to also give people the space to be able to finally not just say who they are, but be creative with us too. And that is just a very different type of model. Dallas, as we're thinking about the mental health issues that face transgender and non-binary people, I also wanted to ask you about what you think mindfulness and meditation, how do you think that impacts the care of someone that's transgender or maybe allow for a more holistic approach to care? I mean, it seems that people in the LGBTQ community are dealing with a lot of traumas and that's associated, of course, with the not being able to conform to societal norms. And with that perceived uh, misalignment, that can obviously be internalized in various destructive ways. And it seems like that mindfulness does have a role to play here. And, you know, I think about a quote from John Kabat-Zinn who described mindfulness as awareness that arises through paying attention 
on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally. And that non-judgmental awareness, I think is really important when you think about that expansive sense alignment with the universe and especially in what's really important, especially for people who are internalizing messages that their bodies are somehow wrong. So I just wanted to ask you just generally, you know, what do you think about mindfulness and did that play a role at all in your transition and how can it help others maybe that are going through a similar situation? Sure. Thank you, Eric. So I worked for a while, actually, at the Compassionate Care Initiative at the University of Virginia. I've also done research on mindfulness, too, and in many different populations, a lot of times in healthcare providers. And what we know about mindfulness is that it gives you the opportunity at any time, really, be able to take a step back from yourself and be able to watch your thoughts, your feelings, pay attention in a non-judgmental way. So especially with what we know in terms of the minority stress model, like you said, people can really internalize society's messages that are out there and say, I am necessarily bad because society says I'm bad. And mindfulness really offers an opportunity to take a step back and not even necessarily interrogate that, but just watch that for a moment and maybe be curious about that and see where that's coming from. And for me, I learned mindfulness while I was also learning to be a nurse at the University of Virginia. And I found it to be a really, really deep way to be able to connect with my own sense of self. Being a very intellectual, philosophical person, many times would fall down these rabbit holes of, am I really trans? How do I know I'm trans? And for me, being able to slow down and take that step back and just be able to feel a sense of peace in the moment, be able to feel a sense of, you know, it's okay. I don't need to come to an answer right this moment, really allowed me to follow my body, my heart, my, my unconscious lead in a way. You know, it allowed me to pay attention to the messages that I was trying to tell myself for my entire life. So sometimes it's like things bubbling up and you can actually be able to see what's bubbling up and see the patterns. But what I would also say too, though, is part of what we're doing at TransHealth Northampton is centering community. And we have a beautiful community room that's right next door to me, where we anticipate being able to at least open hybrid community groups in the next month or so, and be able to offer things like makeup classes, weightlifting classes, you know, tax preparation, but also things like mindfulness too, and things like yoga. And for some trans people, mindfulness may be really hard if they're doing a body scan, right? And don't feel at home in their body. For other folks, it it may bring a new sense of awareness too. But at the end of the day, I, I can't say that one type of practice will be the best type of practice. Everyone is unique. And that's what's, I think, beautiful about this model is that it understands that uniqueness that people come from. But mindfulness, at the very least, allows us to take a step back, slow down, and to help see the universe as it is, including ourselves and our relationship to others. And that is, I I would say, critical in the search for identity. Dallas, that's a great comment. And if mindfulness is something we've ever needed in our world, I think it's now. I think it's something that everybody should be considering and and pursuing. Here we are, COVID-19 has irreparably damaged parts of our society. It's created immense stress and hopelessness for many. 
And in the transgender community specifically, I can only imagine how the coronavirus pandemic has exacerbated existing disparities. Considering elevated rates of asthma, irregular smoking, and HIV among transgender populations also make the LGBTQ community more prone than the general population to experience a severe case of COVID-19. But there has been a silver lining around the pandemic, which has been that it made rapid changes in technology possible in healthcare. And earlier this month, you wrote a great piece in The Hill where you express concerns about interstate licensure rules for telehealth and how that creates a barrier for patients. Can you articulate your concerns for revoking access to telehealth across state lines and how that will invariably lead to a drastic reduction in the availability of care for our most marginalized populations, such as the transgender community? Of course, I could, I could talk about telehealth all day. So I'll start and just say that it, about a year ago, we could provide healthcare to folks across New England and across state lines because we had an executive order by our governor, Massachusetts, which allowed us to do so. And that was with the stroke of a pen. And now we're in a vastly different environment where there still is a pandemic going on. And yet we've now reduced access to healthcare because a lot of those expansions are now rolling back. It is absolutely absurd. We know that telehealth has been proven to result in better outcomes for patients, especially houseless, veteran, urban, rural populations. This is a crucial tool to be able to deliver comprehensive primary and preventive health care for all patients. We also know it's a vital force connecting health centers to their patients, especially during the pandemic. You know, at this point, 98% of health centers nationwide have offered telehealth services compared to just 43% in 2018. That is a huge increase in the use of telehealth and a huge increase in access to care. We also know that health centers specifically, like TransHealth, serve one in five Americans living in rural communities. TransHealth serves many more folks living in rural communities. We know that these are especially critical in rural areas where many residents can face long distances between getting home to their health provider and particularly specialized providers like the folks at TransHealth in Northampton are incredibly difficult to come by. And so it is, again, beyond my comprehension that we can serve individuals in Boston from Northampton in Western Massachusetts, which is an hour and a half, sometimes two hours away, but we cannot serve folks in Vermont, which is only around 40 minutes away. Healthcare is healthcare across state lines. And this is really an artifact actually, historically from the civil war, the fact that we have these different states that are able to say who provides care and who's licensed within the state, even though we know that healthcare remains the same across state lines. And we know that there's increased access to care because of telehealth. And we also know that in general, telehealth is just gonna remain an integral part to health center operations even after public emergencies end too. So telehealth is not going to go away it's really just a place where we need to see more investment and we also need to be able to see more federal dollars flowing into and also be able to see you know, less restrictions around it too. We know that this is one way in which the American healthcare system can really become less of this tangled web. There's a patchwork of federal and state regulations that control licensing and 
They also decide who's allowed to practice. And this makes it very difficult for individuals to actually be able to access different providers. And ideally, a comprehensive one-stop approach would be to appeal to the federal government to see some type of national licensing standard or perhaps the creation of a, a unified agency. But that may not be as likely as perhaps at least implementing some national licensing processes in which individuals could follow nursing's lead and sign on to licensure compacts, allowing for mutual recognition and healthcare access and not necessarily require an additional bureaucratic burden as well there. There's lots of ways that this can be done. It's just something that needs to be done. And I think if we be able to see expansion of telehealth services. We'll also see specifically expansion of access for low-income Americans, low-income trans Americans. And that also includes really thinking about things like voice over telehealth, right? Which for those in rural communities or those that don't have a smartphone, if we have payments for voice over telehealth, that actually will incentivize more providers to then be able to have voiceover appointments and then get individuals the much needed care that they deserve and also expand access. But, you know, at the end of the day, I really just see this as an access issue. We know that there are a lack of competent providers doing trans care specifically or gender affirming care across the country. And so being able to expand telehealth, being able to expand where we can see patients across state lines, and also being able to really rethink how we do licensure is critical to reforming the American healthcare system and also to ensuring that those who need healthcare are able to access healthcare. Well, Dallas, I wanted to ask you about another important aspect of access, and that's gender-affirming care for transgender youth. I know TransHealth Northampton provides a full-spectrum pediatric primary care service for gender-diverse children, and it seems that this is probably one of the more controversial aspects of gender-affirming care, with some states saying this constitutes child abuse even. And the, um, the Association of Medical Colleges recently issued a statement on gender-affirming health care for transgender youth, saying it would oppose any effort to restrict the healthcare community's ability to provide necessary care to any patient in need, including children. So I, I don't know a lot about this issue, and I know there's a, some miscommunication out there potentially, but can you explain why gender-affirming care for the pediatric population is so important? And what would you say to parents and providers who believe that people should not receive this type of care until they're adults? Thank you for asking that question. I think there's some core myths that are going around here, and I would love to dispel those myths. Number one, some of these skeptics or advocates of medical ban bills claim that gender-affirming care is experimental. For example, an SB10 that we saw and other ban bills as well. And these are really just misrepresentations of healthcare. We as clinicians in general have expertise in caring for trans youth, and there's tons of scientific research that has supported our practice. Any legislation that tries to ban care for kids disregards a huge body of evidence and research demonstrating significant positive mental health benefits for transgender youth who've had access to care. There's also myths around the fact that this care might be too available, especially in some of the more recent banned bills. But in reality, clinicians are 
only providing these therapies after a ton of consideration and input from medical and mental health providers. We're not just handing things out willy-nilly. There's a reason why at TransHealth we have integrated appointments. There's a reason why we offer family therapy. There's a reason why we believe that primary care and mental health care are core to what we do. We establish a relationship with the patient and family and medications only get provided after it's been determined that gender identity does not align with sex assigned at birth with a ton of discussion with youth and families, especially around risks and benefits. Healthcare for trans youth is extremely individualized. And actually, we know that at least a quarter of patients that end up at some of these gender clinics don't end up receiving any medications related to gender. There's a whole social transition process that doesn't even rely on medications. We want our patients to succeed, and that really means a thoughtful approach, and that means being very individualistic in our care. There's also claims that gender-affirming care for youth is not evidence-based, but we know, again, that there's tons of research. We know that gender clinics have been doing this work in the U.S. for more than a decade. We know that pubertal suppression has been deemed safe for cisgender boys and girls, and it also leads to decreased suicidalization in trans youth. And research also demonstrates that there's improved quality of life and health after receiving gender-affirming hormones. So the data is clear. If trans kids access gender-affirming care, lives really will be saved. And then I think at the core of these ban bills, we see that there's this myth that they're protecting youth. But honestly, if any of these lawmakers ever succeed in banning care, trans youth are still going to seek treatment. I mean, look at what happened on the war on drugs, right? People didn't just stop taking drugs. No, they go to other methods. Kids are smart. So they will obtain hormones illegally or use online platforms to get advice on medication dosing. We already know that this access is limited and we want to expand access and banning access to care really just makes standard medical care more inaccessible to already vulnerable adolescents and also really ruins the opportunity to be able to encounter kids and their parents together and have a robust support structure. And then I would say, finally, you know, there's this myth that kids and adolescents just can't be believed. And anyone who talks to a trans kid should really understand that they need to be believed, that Trans kids, like all kids, should be worrying about much more important kid issues like school and friends and sports and not whether elected officials are going to take away their health care. Instead, we should really be directing our legislative efforts to fostering some inclusive communities where we can celebrate differences and really grant youth the same opportunities to be able to thrive. Dallas, I'm interested in the insurance issues that healthcare organizations are facing when providing gender-affirming care. In Modern Healthcare last week, there was an article that discussed how there are still coverage issues since the ACA blocked insurers from denying care based on gender or sex status. The health policy is unclear about what gender-affirming services actually entail. At the start, it was interpreted mostly to mean genital reconstruction surgeries. But that's not the only thing that affects someone's gender and excludes coverage offerings like facial feminization surgery and body contouring. A few years ago, there was a study in the Journal of General Internal Medicine that showed how the cost of surgery and hormones is not higher than the treatment costs for depression, substance abuse, and HIV AIDS, all of which are highly prevalent in those who are transgender but who are not in a position to medically transition to the opposite sex. 
Can you speak to some of the reimbursement issues faced by healthcare organizations providing gender affirming care? Of course, yes. So even though we've seen the ACA really reduce the number of uninsured Americans through state and federal marketplaces and also the expansion of Medicaid, there are so many individuals that still lack basic health insurance, which limits any access to care, right? We know that at least 12 states in the South and Midwest have refused to adopt Medicaid expansion. We also know that undocumented persons are not eligible for Medicaid, and there's lengthy waiting periods for many immigrants with legal status. And we also know that premium subsidies under the ACA are not available to undocumented individuals. And so we really have to be thinking about kind of the intersectionality here that occurs. And then even the people who are insured, many can be underinsured. There's many different plans with reasonable premiums with the help of subsidies that also impose some substantial annual deductibles and copay requirements make it very challenging for middle-class folks to afford healthcare. And many postpone seeking provider for anything other than an emergency. Most insurance plans also impose drug formularies. They have restrictive networks for primary care and specialty care that really do not meet plan members' healthcare needs. But this is especially true for trans and gender diverse folks who need access to specialized gender affirming care. You know, even when people seek care, they can also be faced with a lot of draconian bills from out-of-network hospitals and, and providers. And this also really makes access to mental health care and substance use treatment particularly challenging, even for people with insurance. Um, we see a lot of federal plans really impose pre-authorization requirements, have significant restrictions on behavioral health coverage. And this just really translates to a lot of private payers too really need systemic reform of our healthcare system. We really need systemic reform that provides health insurance and expands coverage and also really simplifies our real fractured system. We also need to really be eliminating some of the current healthcare insurance hospital and provider abuses, including what I would call surprise billing, and then also really work to reduce the cost of healthcare, which can make it more difficult to achieve comprehensive healthcare coverage. I'll say at TransHealth Northampton, we have seen tons and tons of prior authorizations that have to be put through for things that are considered off-label, for example. So let's say testosterone, which most trans men need, or you know blockers, which many adolescents or kids might need if trying to prolong the wait till puberty. And that prior authorization request is going to take a long time, and it takes a lot of staffing to be able to do as well. And unfortunately, a lot of these hormones, at least, are off-label. And when, what that requires for something to become on-label is to be able to have really a pharma company be able to sponsor that. But because so many of these medications are so old and generic, we actually don't even have the initiative to be able to do that in the FDA which just results in a lot of medications that shouldn't be off-label being off-label and much more difficult prior authorization process and much more difficult insurance coverage and also the need for additional support staff that just don't need to be there. It's a huge time sink and it's a huge waste in healthcare. And then, you know, we also see a lot of coverage for gender-affirming surgeries or treatments just really vary on a state-by-state -state basis. Massachusetts actually just released 
today, MassHealth released improved guidelines for medical necessity to be able to actually say we will pay for more gender-affirming treatments and more surgeries and increase the amount we pay for these procedures and surgeries. And so when you have the government, like in Massachusetts, leading by example, then the hope is you'll see private payers also begin to lead by example. But this really takes a comprehensive effort. It takes effort on the state to really say that gender-affirming care is life-saving and this needs to be paid for, which not every state will say. We also need to see expansion of healthcare access through insurance. We also need to see reduced costs in healthcare through simplification of things like prior authorizations, for example, and not having these huge backlogs of administrative burden that just don't need to be there. And we also need to be able to see health plans really increasing their coverage of gender-affirming care. When we look at the data, we know that for health insurers, covering gender-affirming care actually will reduce costs and improve health over the long term. And trans and gender-diverse folks are such a small proportion of the population that there's no reason not to do that, especially when you're improving the cost of care and decreasing the reliance on care over time. But even if we take cost out of this equation, the fact of the matter is trans rights are human rights. And these surgeries, these hormones, these medications are life-saving. And so if we're going to pay for someone's cardiac drug, why are we also not paying for another life-saving hormone? Well, Dallas, you mentioned trans rights or human rights, and I thought that would be a great way to wrap up our conversation today. There's been just an unprecedented number of anti-LGBTQ measures sweeping through state legislatures across the country in 2021 has actually uh, surpassed 2015 as the worst year for anti-LGBTQ legislation in, in history, according to the Human Rights Campaign. And while on one hand, you know, there's more people coming out and we see more trans people in politics and on TV, you know, they have Elliot Page and Caitlyn Jenner. But then there's also this unrelenting effort to pass anti-transgender bills in various states. And I just wanted to ask you about, given this deeply entrenched views by opponents of transgender rights, are you confident that we'll ever eventually build consensus that transgender rights are human rights? Could you provide maybe some parting thoughts on how we can bring more love, compassion, empathy, and acceptance to our deeply divided and polarized country? Of course, yes. Well, I just want to start and say that trans people are nothing new. We've been locked out of American society, but we are not new. We have been here since the beginning of human existence, and we will continue to be. And we have a right to healthcare that honors who we are. And we also deserve systems that really include us at the table. We deserve spaces and, and systems that, that track and count us. Without resources, we're just less able to establish comprehensive gender-affirming care, and we don't have the data that we always need. So it's just so important to be able to center those voices that have most at stake. I think at TransHealth Northampton, we're creating a new healthcare system, one that 
empowers, is inclusive of all voices at the table, especially those who have been locked out, marginalized. And instead of fighting against a system, which is I know what we've been doing for so, so long, it's time to really create a new space that understands that core truth that trans rights are human rights at face value. This is not to say that the system should exclude others, but rather embrace diversity, including those that need care most. The current healthcare system we have is one that generally requires privilege and sacrifice to become a key player. It frequently tells clinicians we should be valued for our resilience more than the system's resilience. A system that arises from diversity and inclusion allows for more generative, compassionate, creative approaches to care. And really, we should be creating systems that, that honor that, that honor the individual, that are dedicated to advancing a new form of care. And I think back to marriage equality, at least for folks in the LGBTQ community, we might have thought that we may have never gotten marriage equality. And it really wasn't until more people started to come out. And it really wasn't until we saw more families be able to see that actually they too had LGBTQ folks in their own family structure that it became much more about responding with love because all of a sudden you knew people who were affected by this. You knew people whose families were being torn apart by the government and there became a groundswell of support almost overnight. And we're seeing this same trend in more and more trans people being visible, coming out and in creating systems like Trans Health Northampton. So, I believe that the victories that we have here are going to persist. We've made a brick and mortar clinic and we're going to continue to expand. We're not gonna allow politicians to dictate who we are, what we need, but we are going to build something and we are building something that is beautiful and hopefully a model for many others. And I believe that those victories don't just involve the trans community, don't just involve the LGBTQ community, but they extend far, far beyond. It really, really offers a model for all of healthcare. Gender-affirming care is this profound expression of patient-centered care, one that's really based on our human story, and one that's been shaped by an active, informed, and vocal patient population that has had to learn out of necessity to demand rights to be seen and be cared for. And, you know, I think it's time that the trans community now shows America what healthcare can be. And I think that's what we're going to do. Dallas, thank you so much for sharing your story. I've enjoyed our time together today. And, you know, how can people find out more about your work and uh, Trans Health Northampton? Of course, well, you can go to transhealth.org and you'll be able to learn all about our wonderful Trans Health Northampton Health Center. We have tons of resources there. So those who are still trying to wrap their mind around some of these things they've heard in this podcast, they can go there and find some resources that have been vetted by our staff from folks across the country. And then if you want to also follow us on, on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, our handle is Our Trans Health. Well, thanks so much again, Dallas, for joining us. And this is such an important conversation and certainly gives us an opportunity to better understand gender-affirming care and the role that it plays in value-based care. 
Well, thank you both. This has been such a lovely conversation and I've really enjoyed it. 